One other thing I want to tell you about before we get started is that uh, we handed off all the stockings to the kids at Delta this week. And they were very appreciative. Uh, the principal said they heard all the kids talking as they walked out of classrooms. Oh, what are you going to see? What are you going to see? What are you going to see? Go see Into the Spider-Verse. It's amazing. That's, that's my own two cents. Uh, but, but she also said that they're very thankful. The staff is very thankful. They're just really blessed by the things that we have been doing for them. And they wanted us to thank you for that because you guys make that possible. So thank you on behalf of them. Now, uh, today, I, you know, you had, normally had you start what, for the reading of God's word, have you stand up, but I am going to do that. I am going to do that, but I'm going to kind of give you a preamble to where we're going. Um, we've been doing this series, if you have been gone for this, called uh, We Three Kings, and we looked at the wise men that came to Jesus' birth. We talked about Israel's first king, Saul, their greatest king, David. Today, we're going to talk about this guy named Solomon, and what I continue to do is show you all the bad ways which they ended up, kind of where they started and then where they ended. When most people hear about King Solomon, they'll think, oh, Solomon's wisdom. Solomon's the guy that built the temple. He did all these great things. But where I really want to talk to you again, and it's going to sound like a downer because it kind of is, but where he ended, not where he began. And this is spoken of in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. Much of Solomon's downfall in his, happen, in his life happens because of this improper sexual appetite he has in his life. And we're going to talk about that today. Not in a PG-13 way or rated R way, so, so don't worry about it. We're going to talk about it in a practical, hands-on or hands-off <laughs> kind of way. So... This is 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8. It's longer, uh, and I don't want you to think, boy, how long have I got to stand for? But I do want you to stand for the reading of God's word, and this is longer, so this is how it goes. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And that's an important line right there. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And other versions will say fully devoted right there, as was the heart of of David his father. Now, we knew David fell a lot, had a lot of issues. But when God went after David's heart, David's heart became very tender. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who see the ending and the beginning and that we would see where we really want to end in our lives and work backwards from that. To be a people who love and honor and serve and glorify you and and what we do and how we live because we understand what you have first done for us. We thank you that Solomon's salvation wasn't found in his works, but found in your grace, and that our salvation is also found in your grace, and that no matter where we've been or what we've done, can come in and live in that saving grace. Amen. Have a seat. All right. 
So <clears throat> the reason I did this backwards is it really kind of struck me, all these words about Solomon, because when I was writing this message, it was right about the time that the Harvey Weinstein thing was coming about, right? If you don't know Hoover Weinstein, he's a Hollywood producer. He claims to stand for the rights of women, and yet he forced himself upon and sexually assaulted women. Story after story is coming out today about different sexual assaults by different people. Yes, some are for political gain, but many of them are true and real. One person who was assaulted put up a hashtag that said, me too. And within hours, there are thousands of people who use this and said, yes, me too. I have had this happen to me. It's been a few months now, and there's almost half a million people who have said, me too. And I would like to say to you, if you have been assaulted in your life, it is not your fault. There can be healing and hope with Jesus, and there needs to be justice. People who see themselves on the side of power seem to always gravitate towards this place where they hurt others and they begin to lose their way. And this is sort of Solomon's story kind of what happens to him. He follows the pattern of a lot of men and women today where there is a sexual addiction and encompasses their heart and it leads them astray by all these desires. And we are fully responsible for our actions. I'm not saying we're not, but we're still led astray. So if you look at Solomon's life, you got to wonder if that's how he ended where he's making these high places for his wives to worship these foreign gods and he actually participates in this. Uh, some of these foreign gods required child sacrifice. If that's how he ended, how did he actually start? What's his spiritual formation? Like uh, Hugh Hefner recently died at the age of 91. He was the founder of Playboy magazine. A lot of the stuff we deal with pornography in our culture today, he's like the grandfather of all that. He kind of helps bring that all about. Now, Lee Strobel is a guy who wrote this book called The Case for Christ. And Lee Strobel, a few years ago, got to interview Hugh Hefner. And when he was doing it, he actually shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And he said Hugh Hefner was genuinely interested in the gospel, but then he said he believed in a God, but had minimal belief in a minimal God because he wanted minimal interference from God. And that is typically kind of the American view of God. We want minimal interference from him so we can live our lives the way that we want to. This is the God is my co-pilot. God helps those who help themselves, neither of which is actually in the Bible. God saves us because we cannot help ourselves. Maurice Brown called Solomon the Bible's wisest fool. And so Solomon is a guy who grows up under his father, King David, who we talked about last week. He saw David stumble and fall and almost lose his kingdom on a couple occasions because of his sin. And when Solomon even becomes king over Israel, it's during the midst of this coup where one of David's other sons, a guy named Adonijah, is trying to steal the throne. And so David takes and he anoints Solomon as king over Israel. Solomon should have actually had Adonijah killed, but shows what kind of king he wants to be. And what he says in 1 Kings 152 is, if he, Adonijah, will show himself a worthy man, not one of the hairs shall fall, hairs on his head shall fall to the earth, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. And so Solomon spares him. That's the kind of king he wanted to be. Now later, Adonijah does try again to take the throne from Solomon, and Solomon does kill him, but at first he shows mercy. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. I think Solomon lives this way and does this because he wanted to love God, and I think he really wanted to be a better king than his father had been in many places. Not necessarily love God more than his father, but live out that loving of God in very practical ways in his life. Solomon starts to reign really well. He worships God in honesty, and at one point, God comes to Solomon, and he says, ask whatever you want of me, and I will give it to you. Imagine God showed up to you and said, ask whatever you want of me, and I will give it to you. What would you ask for? I would say, God, let me get up in the morning and my back not hurt. 
Yesterday, I looked to the right. So apparently today, I wake up and my neck hurts when I look to the right right now. I don't know what that is. God, please get rid of my eye floaters. God, please teach everybody how to drive in the roundabout. It's something, right? It would change the world. There would be so much more peace if that, if that happened. This is what Solomon prays for. First Kings 3, 6-9. Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. And he is not a little child. This is the way of saying humbleness. I don't know a whole lot. I don't know how to go out or come in. I am unsure how to govern. That's what he saying, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind. This is the word for wisdom. Other translations will use the word wisdom there. To govern your people that I may discern between good and evil who is able to govern this great, this your great people. What he asks for is wisdom to be a better leader, to show people truth and justice and grace and mercy. And God is pleased with Solomon's response, and he gives him more wisdom than anyone else before him. And for the next seven chapters, you will see detailed out all the ways of Solomon's wisdom. We, and we are people who all want a bit of wisdom. It's like we love those books for dummies, you know, this for dummies and that's for dummies, because we're all a bunch of dummies. We all want some wisdom. Solomon will go on to build God's temple in 1 Kings 8, and he will pray this prayer in verses 22 to 53. It's one of the most beautiful and honest Honest in all of the scriptures, and God continues to remind Solomon to trust me and walk with me, develop your relationship with me. And yet, Solomon in the end will start to worship other gods. Why? Chapter 11, verse 3 He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. I think part of it is that Solomon's greatest strength became his greatest weakness and downfall because he trusted in his own wisdom. He trusted in himself that he could behave any way he wanted to and he could handle it. Next year, we're going to do the book of Ecclesiastes that was written by Solomon. You're going to see all the ways that he stumbled and fell. Uh, God also gave him riches, and he started to trust in those riches instead of the God who gave him those riches. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, God warns his people of future kings, and he says, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. I mean, this is written centuries before Solomon ever showed up. Do you think God knew what he was talking about? Of course he does. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Because God knows the more comfortable we get, the more likely we are to turn away from the one who brought us the ability to have that comfort in the first place. You've got to think of the heights of Solomon's spiritual fervor and this wisdom granted to him by God. It seems impossible that anybody could have come to the place where Solomon did and lived in idolatry. But then we have to understand that we are also just like Solomon. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens by slow degrees. First, it was something he did not like. I would never live that way. And then he tolerates it in his household. And then he starts to bring in more and more foreign women. Then he becomes accustomed to it. Then he becomes comfortable with it. And then he begins to participate in idolatry with his wives. What you have to understand is Solomon never renounced the Lord. He never said, I don't believe in God. I'm not going to follow him. I won't ever do that. You never see him renounce God in anything he does. What the text tells you is his heart was not fully devoted to who God was calling him to be, to who God is, to who God was, to who God continues to be. And this is so much like us today. Many Christians, we never renounce Jesus. We would never do that. But we start attaching so many things next to or on top of who Jesus is that it begins to lead us astray. 
And what Solomon lives in is this curse that plagues Israel that eventually leads to Israel's downfall. Uh, Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I think Solomon's life, it stands as this warning. uh, Sometimes letting things into our lives that that are not good can actually destroy us and destroy our relationship with God. Solomon, for this, came about because of this this lust, this desire, this looking to keep on looking, kind of just like his father David and Bathsheba. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you notice in this text, Jesus is talking to men. This idea of a power differential between men and women, between the sexes, is not created in our day. It's been around for a very long time. Uh, so the Bible kind of addresses this double standard in regard to sex. This is, you know, it's interesting is that there's this explicit part of the Roman law that actually said if you should catch your wife in adultery, you may put her to death. But it says if, she, if you should commit adultery, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. Does that sound like a double standard? Yeah, j- just a little bit, right? Jesus, by talking like this, is going to turn the world on its head in terms of the equality of the, of the wrongness of adultery. That's a message for another time. But when Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, he's not saying that it's just men, okay? He's also not saying that sexual attraction is the bad thing or wrong. It's actually God's idea. Sex is a very good thing. God is pro-hormones, which means Jesus is pro-hormones. Our sexuality is meant to be part of who we are as a people, whether you're single or married or whether you're young or old. For me, it's an amazing constant source of joy that I can find my wife more beautiful every single day. I keep telling her, she excuse me, she's oh, I got gray hair, and I'm like, yeah, and it's awesome, I love it, you're beautiful. Jesus is not talking about attraction or noticing. He's talking about someone deliberately indulges a sexual gratification by noticing in a way that tears down someone else with lustful intent. We're talking about the, the look. Like, imagine a couple goes out to dinner at a restaurant. A woman's waiting on them, and a husband kind of finds her sexually attractive, so he starts staring at her in all the wrong places. You know, my eyes are up here, not, you know, all that kind of thing. But he does it to feed his own desire. Like, you can see it in his face. Uh, a woman serving at a table notices when that happens, and she probably feels a little bit embarrassed or awkward, maybe uh, tempted or even flattered. I, I don't know, but maybe the man's wife notices, and she feels rejected and angry, and she points it out. And then what's he going to do? He's going to deny it. And then he starts adding lying on top of everything else, and he dances in integrity and damages his marriage. And the Ten Commandments, okay, it says, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. If you ask this guy, hey, commandment number seven, he say, well, I haven't committed adultery yet. You know, I haven't done that, but he's already stepped out of the kingdom of God. And this is why when we talk about letting things into our lives, it's not just sexual stuff. It's all kinds of things. Oh, I, I haven't done that yet. But we kind of step out of the kingdom of God, and that's Solomon's progression. And I don't know if you have any idea what I'm talking about here, but again, it's not just about sex. But sexuality does, for us, involve so much emotion, embarrassment, shame, and hiddenness and pretending. And if we don't want to end up like Solomon in so many areas of our lives, we have to have people and places in our lives that can speak truth into it. We've got to pray and listen to God's Spirit as God leads us into these different places. I once heard John Ortberg tell his church it needed to do a mass confession of fallenness. So how about this? Okay, I'm going to try that. If you've ever committed a sexual sin of any kind, if you ever looked at something you shouldn't look at or touched something you shouldn't have touched or maybe flirted with the wrong person or given the look or maybe tried to attract the look, if you've ever been wounded by feeling unattractive, if you've ever failed to talk to your kids about sexuality in a positive way, if you've had a single regret, if you've ever felt for a single moment like you could use some help from God in this area of sexuality, if you've ever even said the word sex, raise your hand. There you go. Should be all of us, right? 
None of us. None of us are perfect sexually. None of us. Sexual intimacy is this idea that God comes about to unite two souls into one flesh. It's to remind us who God is. It was designed to help us and teach us about true worship of God. And sex is the ultimate form of physical intimacy. And marriage is meant to be this declaration of that, this exclusive commitment. It's a promise to be sexually intimate with one person. And lust and pornography is to make promises with our, with our eyes and maybe our minds or even our bodies that withholds our will. If that makes sense, it sets us up for hurting and brokenness and damaging our soul. And this is why God calls it a sin. It is not what God intended for us. We're missing the mark of what God called us to. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew chapter 5, and these are some things people have misunderstood for a very long time. He says, uh, verses 29 to 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. I think that's kind of funny, because what are you going to do, put it in a jar and put it back in later? I don't know. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you should lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So is this how Harvey Weinstein or Hugh Hefner or Solomon could have fixed the issue? Oh, Jodoch, just cut off your hands and gouge out your eyes. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It's so much better. It seems a little harsh, uh, but also kind of easy on the other side of it. Jesus is emphasizing here your right eye, your, your right hand, because in Bible times, the right side of your body was considered the more noble. Uh, you know, the best person you had around you is your right-hand man. It's the right-hand side. It's the stronger side. Sorry, lefties. Don't know what to say about that. Um, your right eye is your best eye. You know, gouge it out and throw it away. There's actually an early Christian, his name is Origen, and he wrestled with his sexuality so much, with so much guilt and shame, that he actually had himself castrated to not be guilty of sexual sin anymore. That is not what Jesus is recommending. Jesus here is using a whole lot of dark humor to get people to see what's actually going on. To show that goodness is not about sin avoidance. If the goal of God for a human life is just to avoid sinful actions, you could do it with surgery, right? You could cut out your tongue. You'll never speak words of deception or harassment. You can cut off your hand. You'll never go to that website because you can't click your mouse to go to the wrong place. You won't touch the wrong thing. You won't grab somebody else. Uh, If you gouge out your eyes, you'll never look at pornography anymore. You'll stop judging people by the way they look, and you'll stop giving the look. If you cut off your legs, you can't walk into the wrong places. If you cut off your ears or sew them together, you won't hear seductive words or gossip. You cut off your sexual organs, you never misuse them. As a matter of fact, why don't we just cut off all of our skin? That'd be a good thing. And then all your nerve endings are gone, and you'll never use it for sensuality. Should you do that? No. Okay, good. Bible in context. No. One commentator actually sarcastically says about this, a lot of churches offer membership. We could offer dismembership. You could experience sanctification by sufficient dismembership. God's will for us is not just this sin avoidance. The parts of our body were given to us by God, not just to avoid sin, but to actually do good with. The real problem with spiritual growth by this idea of dismembership is it doesn't work. Because our real problem in the end is not our hands or our eyes, it's our hearts. And this is why Jesus says, if anyone who looks at a woman with lust for has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's our heart. Solomon's heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Do you see the progression? That's what Jesus wants us to see. Our heart is the innermost unseen core of who we are. It is the place of our secret thoughts and our desires and perceptions. And if you chopped off every bit of your body you've ever sinned with, you could still lust and think in your mind about ways you shouldn't supposed to. You could still think horrible things about other people because it is our hearts. And if we live for our desires, we will always end up being slaves of our desire. And that's what happens to Solomon. 
when it comes to even, say, just sexual you know, thoughts and we want to listen to gratification, you have to also keep another, like, a thousand thoughts out of your mind. You have to forget that this person you're looking at is somebody's son or daughter. And if you had a son or a daughter and somebody looked at your son or daughter like you're looking at this person's son or daughter, you would, you would go crazy. You have to not think about your spouse or your children, most importantly, Jesus. And if anyone should have taken heed of these things, it should have been the guy who had the most wisdom who ever lived. Shouldn't it? Of course it should. Solomon was meant to lead by example, just as we are supposed to lead by example. Solomon apparently considered himself above the law, and he begins to pay this very high price for it. These 700 wives, a lot of them were probably entered into for different ways of solidifying uh, diplomatic alliances with other countries. But many of these concubines and some of those wives were also for Solomon's pleasure to enter the splendor of the king. And this is why at the summation of his life, you read Solomon, he loved many foreign women. In verse 2, this is why it says, he clung to these in love. This wording is about strong emotional attachment. It's about his heart, his heart, and where his heart was. Now, if you're married to somebody, one person, it's normal and desirable for a husband to love that one person. But Solomon loved the wrong woman, woman, women, woman, women, yeah, and, and many women, and it led his heart astray. See, part of this, I think that is as he grew older, his resistance kind of begins to wear down a little bit. He became increasingly vulnerable. Uh, his worship of God probably became more mechanical than, than heartfelt. He's probably like, oh, it's Sunday. I guess I've got to go to church again. Oh, here, here, here I go. Solomon runs after this goddess. Her name is Ashtoreth. This is a Canaanite fertility goddess. And actually, the original vocalization of her name was Ashtart. And I know it sounds funny, right? Ashtart, right? The, but this is a revocalization of, of a word that was based upon the word for shame. And what the text is trying to tell you is that Solomon brought shame upon himself. And when we start to live in shame, it spirals down even further. The worship of Ashtoreth and this fertility rite, Solomon comes to a place where he not only allowed these practices in his household, but he participated in them, and that brought shame into his life. And it starts in a place where he knows it's a sin, and then he stops fighting it, and then he allows it in his house, and then he participates in it, all while claiming to love and follow Jesus. And the saddest part is there's different things in Solomon's life that you see that God did for him. Like in, in 1 Kings eleven nine, God reminds Solomon that God has shown up to him twice. Solomon did not lack for any of proof or evidence of God's love and power who he was. God had chosen Solomon to be king even though Solomon wasn't the firstborn. God granted Solomon all this power and prestige like, like no one else before him. God had done all of these things for him. And yet, in the end, he trusted in these things and not in God himself. Solomon got to grow up under a father like David who's had a heart that was really devoted to God. Yes, he messed up a lot of times in his life, but every time someone punches through that hard callousness he had in his heart, David became humble and was like, yes. I think the reason Solomon built the temple is because David had a heart for who God was and David didn't get to build the temple and and he probably is telling Solomon all about what he wants to do for God and Solomon is the one who gets to build this temple because of what his father laid into him. All of these things Solomon gets this wisdom of. And he slowly just starts to drift because his heart was not fully devoted to God. As we are a people who God has bestowed so much favor upon us, and yet so often we run towards whatever idol we think is going to fulfill us and make us feel better. We forget the gospel, the good news, that God's favor has been spoken over us. We, like Solomon, cast the true joy that fellowship with God brings away from us. The truth is that we are really all a train wreck apart from Jesus. 
But the beauty of the gospel is, for so much of us in our lives, our hearts are not fully devoted to the Lord. But I will tell you that God is fully devoted to us. This is the beauty of why Jesus came. Not that we're the center of God's universe, but because God is so good and holy and right and true, God comes to rescue us as his people. Because we must be a people who trust in the grace that God has spoken over us. Because when we do, everything can really begin to change. Everything can. And it's going to start in our hearts and trusting the things that God has said. And instead of our hearts leading us astray, our hearts going to desire and a passion to return to who God has called us to be. When we truly love Jesus, we begin to arrange our lives around God's grace and his calling over us. And at the end of our life, think about what it would be like to be able to look back over a life that really loved Jesus above everything. And we look back at you know, the places where we fully were devoted to him and where everything wanted to pull us away, and yet we still continue to walk with him in this growth and healing in our hearts. Not, again, because we did it so well, but because we understood God's grace better, and we saw Jesus constantly saved and renewed our hearts day by day through his spirit. This is what Solomon forgot. And this is why I believe we are called as a people to be those who are involved in gospel-centered community, where we can build a community of men and women together who learn to be honest about our struggles, that we can be around our brothers and sisters in, in Christ as God gives us the strength with one another to handle the things that come into our lives and understand that through it all and that God is the king that reigns over all of it because he is the great king, because he has given us hope, because he has spoken words of grace to bring us back in again. We get to be a people who don't have to end up like Solomon, but we can end up in a place that we can be fully devoted to God for our entire lives because God has given a spirit to us and calls us to love and live for him in all that we do. Tomorrow night, we are going to talk about King Jesus as the great king. And I'll tell you, this is a good one. It doesn't end on a bummer, okay? <laughs> like all these other ones, this ends on a great high and a wonderful thing that Jesus comes and rescues. So it's going to kind of be a lot of fun. But I think we have to understand we have been given God's spirit. We have been loved by God. We need to find our salvation in him and who he calls us to be because he is simply that good. As God has done so much for us, he has spoken so much grace and truth over our lives. And so often we are people who, like Solomon, tend to forget that. We tend to start to let everything else kind of pull us away, these things that we love. And for you, it may not be a sexual thing. You know, it could be anything. It, it could be electronic gadgets. You know, it, I like electronic gadgets. It could be guitars, like this guy, right? It, I, everything just kind of pulls me in all these places. But God is the one, through his spirit, and continually reminds me of who he is and calls me back because God calls us to be people who don't have to end up like a Saul or a David or a Solomon. We can end up as a people who live in the hope and the grace of the gospel because it is God who has rescued us. That's what takes us to communion every single week where you take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me because it is not based upon our works or our actions that brings us into a place of salvation. It's based upon Christ's work for us as a people. And so this is why we get to live in great hope because we don't have to go to a place like Solomon builds a temple for sacrifices. We don't have to do that because Jesus came and he was the one and final sacrifice for our sins. And so we get to trust in that, that God has come and spoken words of rescue and redemption over us. And that means our hearts get to be fully devoted to who he is because we can remember daily what he has done. And today I encourage you to remember that when you take communion, that God has been devoted to us in ways that we have never been devoted to him. 
and he rescues us because of his own goodness. The band's going to come up as they do. I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons in the back, and if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today where you want to pray about your heart being fully devoted to God, and you have kind of struggled with that in most of your life, they, they'd love to pray with you about that. They would love to begin to talk to you about some of those things. Maybe you have some struggles in your life and you're not sure of who to talk to or who to tell or how to begin to you know, walk through some of those things. Well, they'd love to talk to you about that, to pray through many of those things. Um, there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. Uh, there's food and stuff outside. We invite you to grab something to eat. Uh, apparently, there's homemade cookies, and they were going fast. Uh, grab a cookie, meet some other people, take some sermon notes, maybe just those short little notes, and, and just talk through a couple of those questions. And maybe talk about the places where maybe your heart begins to kind of be pulled away in different areas. Again, it doesn't have to be in the area of sexuality like Solomon. It it can be in so many different places. But begin to talk about that with other people and invite people in. And listen to God's spirit as he leads and guides us. Because God is good. God is good. If God was not good... And if God, if God, seriously, it's like we talk about God's love and his justice coming side by side. If God was just a God of justice, he would let us all sit in our sin and perish and die. But he is also good and loving. And so he sends his son to come and rescue us so that we can be a people who remember and understand God's devotion to us as a people. And because God loves us first, we can love him back. And because God has been devoted to us, we can be devoted to him back. And that our righteousness before him is not something that is a bunch of works. It is God's work first done for us and us trusting and living in that and that changing our lives. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would remind us of your great love for us. So often we forget how much you actually do love and care for us. And it's not based upon our goodness or our works or what we've done. It's based upon who you are. Father, when we look at somebody like King Solomon and we see all the ways that his heart wasn't fully devoted to you, I ask that you would teach us to see the ways where our hearts aren't fully devoted to you. And that wouldn't spiral us into a place of shame, but it would spiral us into a place of remembrance of your goodness. And it would change how we not only see ourselves and the world around us, but how we relate to you. That we'd begin to love you the way you have loved us. And that service of you would come out of a fully devoted heart. Not because we're trying to do things to make you love us more, but that we would do the things we do simply because we love you and our hearts are devoted to you. And the relationships that we have in our lives would be reflective of who you are. And that what we say and and what we do would all be representative of you. Teach us to be a people who understand the great grace and freedom you have bestowed upon us. And to live that out in this world as our hearts and lives become more and fully devoted to who you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.